We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 8. Father, we thank you for giving us the privilege of gathering in your name and being called your kids and having a destiny that's secure, to be able to be part of your body, a body that stretches through history and around the globe. I pray tonight as we look at one of your prophets and how you spoke and how you used him, I pray that his voice could speak to us 2,500 years later and sharpen us and direct us and that how you inspired him would inspire us. So speak, may we hear, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So from time to time, I'll go to a store and go shopping, and I'll run into somebody that goes here, and they'll a lot of times have a, a kid, and it's the kid that recognizes me, and, you know, hey, hey, there's, and one kid said, hey, there's uh, Master Pat. <laughs> I still love that. <laughs> Got a little mixed up. All right. Master Pat. And uh, it's always interesting to me, and school teachers have told me the same thing, that the kids are like perplexed, perplexed that I exist outside of this right here. Like, what? You mean you're just not at church all the time? Like, you go shopping? So the, the kids are like perplexed, and school teachers tell me the same thing. They're like, that happens to me too. Like, what? Who let you out of Fruitdale? Who let you away from Parkway? You're supposed to stay there all the time, right? So uh, it's, it's interesting. So the kids are perplexed. The, the parents, I've noticed, prod. And they're usually looking in my shopping cart. Is there any sin in there? <laughs> right? <laughs> What's he buying? Hmm. <laughs> it's funny. So here's where we're at right now. We look at chapters one through seven, and there's this hanging question. And the hanging question is, What's God doing in Babylon, right? He belongs over in that temple. Who let him out, right? How in the world is he out of his place? So it's been kind of hanging for seven chapters because in chapter one, we saw there is this, it's the Ruach, the spirit storm that erupts and, and Ezekiel sees this incredible Godmobile held up by these cherubim and he falls on his face. And then there's these series of things that happen. He's commissioned, he's given authority, he does these plays. But the whole time we're still kind of like, why is God here? Why is he in his spot in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant? Well, this is, these chapters are like a prequel. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, what we'll do tonight, they're like a prequel. They happen 14 months later, but they're actually filling in, here's why God is in Babylon and not in his temple over the ark in the Holy of Holies. So it's the prequel, chapter 8, verse 1. And what God's going to do is he's going to take Ezekiel on a five-stop tour of Jerusalem and the temple. So chapter eight, verse one. 
in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month. He's a little OCD, isn't he? <laughs> I knew the exact, it was 12.45 p.m. As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah, interesting, God had told him, Ezekiel, they're going to know a prophet's in their midst. So already you see elders are coming and kind of hanging out with Ezekiel, like, what's he going to do next? He shaved his head with a sword. He laid on his side for 430 days. He ate food cooked over dung. What's he going to do next? He built a little Lego set of Jerusalem and like shot catapults at it for 430 days. What's he going to do next? So now there's kind of these, this crowd of people, the elders, the leaders are like, hmm, there's something, something with this guy. So they're there in his house. And the hand of Yahweh God fell upon me. Then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Once again, it's all this like, I think it looked like that form, appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist, again appeared, was fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness. How much more generic can you get than that? It just looked bright. He put out the form of a hand, I love this, and took me by the lock of my head and the spirit, the ruach, lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in vision of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner courts that face north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley, chapter one. Then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will still see greater abominations. Stop number one is the idol of jealousy. So here's what happens. Ezekiel's just sitting in his house. He's got his elders, some, some people with him there. And all of a sudden, he gets snapped into another dimension. The best way I can explain this is if you've seen The Lord of the Rings. Who's seen that movie? Okay. When Frodo puts on the ring, what happens? He goes into like a different dimension, right? To me, that's kind of what's happening. That other dimension is real, it's real, but it's different. So what is happening to Ezekiel is he's in a different dimension. It's still real, it's not fake, but he's in a different dimension. So just kind of a, he, he snaps into this vision, this different dimension, and he's, and he's, and he's goes to, with God, he's taken over hundreds of miles over the desert, back to Jerusalem, he's plopped down into the temple where God belongs. So the term begins, if you would, hey, this is why I left. Here's why they drove me from the sanctuary. And stop number one is this idol of jealousy. Now, what was it? No one knows. We can make a pretty good guess, though, because there was a really wicked king. His name was Manasseh. 
in 2 Kings 21 says that he erected inside that gate an Asherah pole. Now, what's an Asherah pole? Well, Asherah has to do with fertility, worship, or sex. So set up inside right where this one would be was this Asherah pole. So what would happen is the north gate was the gate the king would come in. So Manasseh would come in the north gate. There he would worship at the Asherah pole. You can imagine what would happen with fertility rites and sex. And then he would leave the worship of Asherah and then head down into the temple, just syncretism. People still do it today. They go to the bar on Saturday night. There's usually an Asherah pole there as well. <laughs> they sow their wild oats, right? Saturday night at the bar. And then Sunday morning, they're in church praying for crop failure. It's syncretism. It's been universal. It's this and that, a little, little of this, a little of that. It, it's what they're doing right here. And it says that this thing, this Asherah pole right in front of the temple made God jealous. God didn't like it. God's jealous? That seems bad. If you know the story of Oprah, Oprah used to go to church. She's now a pantheist, if you read her stuff. She's a, God is in all things and everywhere. But she tells how she transitioned out of believing she was in church and as only a preacher can do that is African-American, they, they can just, they can, they can preach. And so this preacher's just talking about how great God is. His majesty, his glory, his creativity, his grace, his mercy, just rhythm and rhyme and beauty. And she said she was caught up in this moment and the whole church was caught up in this incredible moment as he just word after word of God. And then all of a sudden, and he is a jealous God. And she said, in that moment, she just said, what? I'm out. I will not worship a God who's petty and jealous. And what she gets wrong is this. God isn't like jealous. Like he's looking down at Oprah going, man, look at all that cash. <laughs> How can I get my hands on some of that? That's not God's jealousy. There's a bad jealousy and it manifests itself in really bad stuff. Bad jealousy is wanting what does not belong to you. And so then it becomes trying to control somebody and manipulate somebody and it's really ugly and destructive. But there's also a really good jealousy. And it's where you love somebody so much that you want to protect them and help them. And that's a good jealousy. And it manifests itself very often as passion. You just have a passion for somebody. God has passion for us. It's huge. So um, the best example of this I have is I did this marriage counseling a number of years ago. And they were a really good couple. Everything seemed great about them, great kids. Just, it was great. And I was like, why are you guys here? And so I'm trying to like, process through what's going on. And I'm asking questions and hey, he's a great dad. He's a great husband, great provider, neat, clean. We mesh on all these levels. And, and I, I was like, what is up? Why are you guys here? And so finally I asked this husband, I said, do you ever get angry? That maybe he's got a temper. He's like, oh, oh no, I never get mad. And I saw, you can see body language. Like she just, the wife just went like this. I'm like, what's going on? I saw that. And she said, I wish he would get upset. 
That's his problem. Nothing makes him mad. Nothing gets him upset. And I know that I don't matter. I thought, wow, how insightful that is. He didn't care. What I learned was he doesn't really care about her. And in the process of more questions, that's what I found out. And she said, I wish he would get upset. I'm like, that is the first time I've ever heard that in marriage counseling. I've never heard that before. There's no passion. There's no, hey, this really matters and it really gets me. God's saying, you guys really matter. And this thing is going to hurt you. This fertility item, this thing over here, it's going to ruin you. God knows it's a taker. And so he says, get away from you. I want to protect you from destruction. So we stop number one, this image of jealousy. So God says, it's driving me away from my sanctuary. Stop number two is the images inside the priests and the elders. Verse seven, and he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. (laughs) Ezekiel is just awesome, isn't he? Like, this is like (laughs) such a classic man. He said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 of the men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of the incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. For they say, Yahweh does not see us. Yahweh has forsaken the land. And he said to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Stop two. Not just this idol outside the temple, but now he burrows, if you would, into the very minds of the 70 elders of Israel. And inside their mind, he sees these secret images, these pictures of their mind, verse 12, what they are secretly thinking about. Now think about it for just one second. I always try to put myself into the story. Would you want Ezekiel digging into your mind and poking around? What would he see in there? What would he see in any of our minds, right? Let's imagine at some point, the iPhone 31 can actually read your thoughts. That's not far away, by the way. The University of Rochester just put out this study. It's unbelievable. Where they have this ability where they can teach AI, artificial intelligence, by hooking up people to an MRI and these different machines, where they can, with 70% accuracy, say before you're going to say something, what you're going to say. It's crazy. I'm like, that is crazy. Their hope is to remove the middleman, they call it. That if you want to take a a picture, you just snap your eyes and say, send it to grandma, or just think, send it to grandma, and then it takes care of it. That's their hope. I'm like, have these guys watched Terminator? (laughs) Because they should, because that sounds nutty to me. It's like, uh uh-oh, it's coming. We're doomed. But just imagine for a second, iPhone 31, it it reads you and broadcasts on these TVs right here. 
Who would want that? Nobody, right? This is that scary. Ezekiel burrows in these minds and he sees what he'd probably see in any mind, if we're honest. And here's what's amazing. Like the day that we live in is really a fun age, but it's also dangerous. Technology has made this age like dangerous. I'll give you one statistic. It, it's, it's this guy puts out this list every year of 50 crazy statistics. And he's not a believer at all. And this is one of his, he said this, there's one porn site. It has 1,892 petabytes of information. Um, all that information would fill every iPhone sold in 2015. That's one site. And there's thousands and thousands and thousands of these sites. The Bible says this, your brain is the battleground. 2 Corinthians 10. Man, our, our fight is not with fleshly weapons. It's, it's not carnal. It's, that's not what it's, it's spiritual. It's fleshly. And it's a tearing down of strongholds in people's brains. Well, Matt, my problem is not pornography. Pastors are always talking about pornography. I don't have an issue with it. Okay. You are bombarded every single day now with technology, with 10,000 advertisements, trying to get you to buy this trinket and that thing and do this and think this way and do all that kind of stuff. We're bombarded with that constantly. And it begins to affect us. So have you ever been like driving in your car and all of a sudden just the most random thought comes into your brain? Just evil thought, you're like, what in the world? Have you ever been sitting in church and have just the most random thought come into your brain? Where's that coming from? We have a real enemy, the flesh, this thing right here, the world with all its advertisements. And, and then there's a spiritual dimension to these things. So what do we do? How do we push back against this, this pressing in in our mind of images? Sometimes you don't even want them. Like it just flashes on. It's at wherever. Like, ah, man, I didn't want to see that. How do you battle back against that in the age we live? I have this illustration. I'll never forget it. And it's this guy, if you've never listened to him, listen to him. His name is Chuck Swindoll. He's like a classic preacher. So if you want just classic preaching, just the elegance and the gentlemanness and the cadence and, and your 12 points that all rhyme, and that's Chuck Swindoll. So he's a great one. He gave an illustration I'll never forget. He was at this big conference and he had finished his thing and, and taxi, hotel, gets in the elevator. He's going up the elevator. Halfway up, it stops. In walks this beautiful woman. And she's dressed up and she looks beautiful. And he says, ma'am, uh, what floor? And she looked at Chuck Swindoll and said, what floor would you like? Dun, da, dun. <laughs> and he, Chuck Swindoll says this, in that moment, what began to fire in his brain was all the verses since he was a little kid he had memorized. From Genesis chapter two, that uh, man shall leave mom and dad and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Proverbs six, that the man that commits adultery is not wise. He destroys his very soul. First Corinthians chapter six. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore glorify God with your body. They just started fire one after another, after another. And he looked at this lady and said, how about down hell for you? 
He did not say that. I'm so kidding. <laughs> he probably saved her soul, you know. I would be like, hell for you. He didn't. That's it. It's scripture. We pour scripture in, and what we say is, spirit, set that ablaze when I need that. The psalmist would say, how does a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed to the word of God. There's this great story by Elisha. Where he has these, the school of prophets, and one day they go and they, they're making wild stew. And so they go out and they collect a bunch of stuff or they build this big stew and someone had collected a poisonous plant. And they knew it right away. Uh-oh, they said, there's poison in the stew. Elisha, what are we gonna do? We're hungry. It says he took a bunch of meal and he poured all that meal into the pot and it dissipated the poison. Man, to me, that's the perfect analogy. We, we go throughout the world through life and we're just picking up things, whether we want them or not. Some of them are poisonous. So how do we, what, what's the antidote to that? You got to keep pouring in good stuff. Pouring in God's word, sticking in the narrative of Jesus, the, the renewal of all things that he's come to create a new humanity that lives differently. And we're going to hit on that in chapter 11. That's how. And then you just pray, spirit, when I need this, set it ablaze in my heart. Protect me. So number two, Stop number two, these elders who have these really bad images in their brain. Stop number three, verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of Yahweh. Now they're at the temple. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? And you will still see greater abominations than these. I call this, it's Christmas. Why? <laughs> Here's why. In Genesis 11, there's this guy named Nimrod. He built some cities, Nineveh and Babylon. Well, if you know your history, and you can get this book, it's called Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. It's an old book, 1800s, and it's a super hard read. I read it once, and in that book, what he shows is there's a tracing of a lot of this, this kind of worship that comes from Genesis 11, Babylon. And one of them is there is an idea that Nimrod marries this gal. Her name is uh, Tammuz. And they have a son named Semiramis. Semiramis gets killed and then he's resurrected. And they worship Semiramis on the winter solstice when uh, the days stop getting short, they start getting longer. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Isn't that crazy? Satan's just a great counterfeiter. So what people say then is, look it, Matt, when you celebrate Christmas, when you have a Christmas tree, Jeremiah chapter 10, you're worshiping Tammuz by doing those things. And I grew up in a church where for the first Oh, 16 years of my life, we did not celebrate Christmas. We never had a Christmas tree. We didn't get Christmas presents. We didn't celebrate Easter or Ishtar. Uh, we didn't celebrate that satanic holiday of Thanksgiving. No, do not give thanks. So we didn't do any of those things. So, so I'm like, hey, that, that's my history, right? And I can remember um, when Edgewater started, we had a Christmas tree in our office, the one that was up on 6th Street. And I walked in one morning, early in the morning, and I get in there, it's like 
probably about 5.50 in the morning. And someone had been there the night before. And there on the Christmas tree was this piece of paper, Jeremiah chapter 10, all the abominations of a Christmas tree. And I remember I grabbed that paper and I thought, oh my goodness, they found me. <laughs> Run. So I get these kind of questions and they'll ask me about, hey, Matt, are Christians allowed to have a Christmas tree? Because of all this kind of history. And what I say is absolutely not if you're worshiping Tammuz. But if you're not, hey, no problem, right? <laughs> are, are you worshiping Tammuz with it? No, then don't worry about it. And I don't know people that I really love that still do not celebrate Christmas. And I say to them, hey, you know, if you wanna make your kids miserable and for your neighbors to think you're really weird, which is kind of par for the course for Christians, just go right ahead and don't do it. It's fine. But for me, here's what I believe. And this is, if you look at the history of why we chose Christmas to celebrate Jesus Christ's birthday. Everyone knows Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Shepherds aren't outside in that time. People don't travel at that time. It's too cold. They travel in the autumn. Shepherds are outside in the autumn. It would have been September-ish or something. Everybody knows that, right? But here's what they said 1,700 years ago. They said, look it. We could shut down this really fun time or we could redeem it. We could say, hey, the winter solstice where the days from that day forward start getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Isn't that what Jesus does? When Jesus comes into your life, doesn't your life get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter? When Jesus came into the world, a great light came and it got brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And one time, Jesus the light is gonna come back to earth and it's gonna be light again, right? So why not redeem this holiday and say, yes, we're going to use it. That's what I say, right? People say it has pagan roots. I say, yeah, so do I. But guess what? Jesus redeemed me and I'm redeeming it. I'm going to use it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus and how good he is and his generosity and his kindness. And I think if you do that, man, Christmas is a wonderful, brilliant season. So if you're not worshiping Tammuz, no problem enjoy it. If you're worshiping Jesus, redeem it. They, however, Tammuz, they brought Tammuz into the very temple of Yahweh. Stop number four, verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of Yahweh. So now they're inside. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of Yahweh, between the porch and the altar, this is where the priest would pray, where about 25 men with their backs to the temple of Yahweh, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Nobody has a clue what that means. I looked at it. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Lastly, or last stop in this chapter, they're insulting Yahweh. So they're worshiping the sun, and it says they're back, literally, they're at core, which can very well mean you're behind is pointed at the temple of Yahweh. So what are they really doing? They're mooning God, and he is insulted by it. So 
What's happening in chapter nine is you have what I call buffet religion. We'll take a little Jesus. Um, we'll take a little Buddha. We'll take a little Ganesh. We'll take a little tribal stuff. You know, we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll make our own custom made religion. So we're gonna take a little Tammuz. We're gonna take a little bit of uh, the worship of the sun. We're gonna take a little bit of the Asherah sex goddess. We're, we're gonna just buffet religion. And right here, this one, worshiping the sun is is animism or worshiping creation. Now, the New Testament says this, that there's coming a time, it's Romans chapter one, when people will forget the creator and they'll start worshiping creation. Do we do that in America? Man, I'll tell you a story that just broke my heart. Probably because of the kids that are in my home right now. But it was back just a couple months ago down in Florida, you can Google it if you want, where a house of filth was found and the, the, the house was full of 24 chihuahuas and uh, two children. And they said the children, when they came in there, had just, the, the, the whole house was just full of feces and just caked on feces on their feet, just really, really bad. Well, there was one sentence about the kids. The kids were taken by DHS. The entire rest of the article was about the 24 chihuahuas. Kepasa. And it was, hey, four of these are pregnant. Um, when they give birth, they're all in good shape. We're going to um, chip them and dip them and nip them, you know, and then they'll be up for adoption. And if you want to adopt one, here's what you do. And when, there's a GoFundMe site set up. You can also send your donations to this address. The entire rest of the article, the vast majority of it, 90% of it was all about the chihuahuas. My heart broke. I don't, you know, I'm fine with dogs. But you know what? I care about these two kids a lot more. And I think Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook man, hit it right a couple years ago when he said this. What they've noticed about Facebook is that the dead squirrel in your front yard is much more important than people dying in Africa. That's America's mentality. Coming from Mark Zuckerberg, looking at the algorithms he's receiving from Facebook. That's what we care about. That's what we're liking. That's what we're talking about. And yet people are dying. I think personally, in America, we need a bit of recalibration. Yeah, love animals, but our focus is on the Imago Dei, human beings. That's where we place all of our effort. And what happens, very interesting to me, is verse 17. Then he said to me, have you seen this, all this stuff that's happening? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abomination that they commit, that they should fill the land with violence? So here's the problem with idolatry. When you're worshiping whatever it is, the God of sex or the God of war or whatever it is, guess what happens to you? You start acting on those things. That becomes who you are. We are what we worship. We are what we worship. So God says, I'm jealous because I want you to worship me because you're created in my image. And when you do, you become like me, kind, compassionate, generous, full of justice. That's what I want for you. And when you don't, look out. So the CDC just put out this, it is, every parent should get it. Go CDC, teenage sexuality. Now the CDC is what? The Centers for Disease Control, not a Christian organization. No agenda there. They're just looking at the facts. It is one of the most 
eye-opening looks into what happens when teenagers get sexually active. Like it's unbelievable. Like the damage, like three, one, one of the statistics, they're just unbelievable. 3,300% more likely to like, you know, engage in this hard behavior if they're sexually active. It's unbelievable. Depression, 1,500% more likely to be depressed. It's just unbelievable on every metric. And yet what, what are the ads pushing to our young people daily? What are we selling them? What are we worshiping? It's crazy to me. I have a book right now. It's called Girls and Sex. It was a bestseller in, I don't recommend anyone read it. I just read it because I want to know, okay, what is happening? It's a very good look at, this is the environment these kids are in. The violence that happens on campuses, the violence that is happening to young women all the time, pushed on by really the pornography that they're seeing. This is the way you treat women. You objectify them. You treat them this way. You demand this from them. You pressure them to do this. You pressure them to send these things to you. It's unbelievable. It's saddened. It breaks my heart because we're worshiping something and there's violence connected to it. That's why God's jealous. I don't want that for society. I don't want you guys broken in that way. Worship me. Get away from that stuff. So finally, finally, God says, verse 18, I'm putting a stop to it. This injustice, and if you know what's happening at this time, Jeremiah 32 tells us that they were sacrificing their children on the altars of Moloch in the Valley of Hinnom. And God just says, no, this violent injustice must end. I've asked you time and time again to repent. You won't. So he's putting an end to it. So how is he gonna do that? Stop number five, the last one, chapter nine. I'm gonna read the whole thing. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a riding case at his wrist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it had rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And Yahweh said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill the old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark." And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, I was left alone. And I fell upon my face and cried, oh, Yahweh, God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpoint of your wrath on Jerusalem? And he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say Yahweh has forsaken the land and Yahweh does not see. And as for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And I'll bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done 
as you commanded me. That's hardcore. Now at this point, 400 plus years since David saying, repent, stop, repent, stop, don't kill your babies, stop, and they would not do it. So God here judges them. But before he does, he sends in this guy in linen who begins to mark out certain people, not them. Whenever I read passages like this, I always think, would I be marked? If judgment came like this, would I be marked? Notice the measure that's used to mark out those that were protected. It's verse four. Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Who gets marked? Those that are crying for their city. Those that are broken over the injustice that they're seeing. That's who. You ever weep for Grant's past? You ever broken for what you see, the abominations taking place? Kids being neglected, women being hurt, sons and daughters being ran over, the injustice. You ever weep over Oregon, over the United States, over our world? You ever say like John Scott, hey, give me Scotland or I die? You ever just, give me Grant's pass. Let's see this stuff stopped. I hope you do. I hope you read the newspaper and and you, you weep at the police report. Not with glee, but weeping. How can this be in my, in my city? Jesus, in Matthew 25, speaks of a, another separation that's gonna take place. It's the separation of the sheep and the goats. And the separation is based on this criteria. He says this, in that you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. People whose hearts have been broken over sin and abomination and what ends up happening to the least of these, how they get lost and run over, they say, that's got to stop. I got to help them. Jesus says, yes. See, it seems to me that the Bible makes it pretty clear that, that the world is supposed to know were his disciples. Guess how? By our bumper stickers by our t-shirts, by our slogans, by our sermons, by the fact that we don't have a Christmas tree, he must be a Christian. <laughs> He's not worshiping Tammuz. No, by what? By our love. That we're broken over the things that break Jesus. And then we say, Jesus, how can I partner with you in pushing back against that abomination? How can I help? That, that seems to be what I see in the Bible. So this city is judged because of its abominations. And then chapter 10, here's what we're going to see. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something of sapphire, an appearance like a throne. And he said to me, or said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from beneath the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes 
Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. And when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court and the glory of Yahweh went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of Yahweh. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. So here judgment happens, but God is making sure to say, Nebuchadnezzar's not doing this to you guys. The coals are coming from me. This is justice. For hundreds of years, I've pleaded with you. Now it's justice. And then you see kind of mixed in this, you see God gathering kind of up his stuff, if you would. And he starts to kind of move out, chapter nine says, from among the cherub above the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, it goes out to the threshold of the temple. It's God getting his stuff together. And he starts to move out. And verse 15 puts it like this. Then the cherubim, remember, these are the dudes holding up the Godmobile in chapter one. The cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chebar Canal. They get up, they start to hold the, the Godmobile, verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Now God's on the Godmobile, right, on his throne. You can read chapter one for that. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So it's as if God says, I'm packing up and I'm moving out. I've got my glory mobile going and we're gone. So what do they do? Verse 11, chapter 11, excuse me. The spirit, the Ruach lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of Yahweh, which faces east. Why the east gate? Where did Ezekiel come from? Babylon. Which direction is Babylon? East, right? It's northeast, but the east gate's the closest gate. So, so what you see, God's answering the question. How'd I end up in Babylon? Well, Look what's happening in my city. Look at this abomination. So I packed up, I moved out of the house, if you would, and then I started to head out the east gate back toward Babylon. And then as he goes out, it's like just adding insult to injury. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway were 25 men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, the princes of the people. These leaders that, had, that Ezekiel had known many years before when he lived in Jerusalem, before he was in exile, living in a refugee camp outside of Babylon, he says, hey, I recognize these leaders. What were they doing? And God said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel to this city, who say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore, Prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So, so it's almost like the last straw. As he's going out, he sees these two leaders and these, these 23 other men. And God says, these guys, these leaders, they're liars. And what they were lying is, their lie was this. Jerusalem is this cauldron, this pot, and we're the meat in the pot. Here's what that meant. Okay, just a little history. If you had really good meat 2,500 years ago, you would cook it in an iron pot. The choice meat would go in an iron pot. 
your cheap meat would go on the barbecue. Now we're the opposite of that today, right? Praise God for the crock pot. It can sh- turn shoe leather into filet mignon, all right? So w- w- what he's saying is this, what, these guys are saying this, we're the choice meat. The bad meat, the bad dudes, they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar a couple of years ago and they were taken off like Ezekiel to a refugee camp outside of Babylon. But we're the choice meat. We're the good guys. We're the ones God left behind. So don't worry. You don't have to about rebuilding the wall. You don't have to worry about anything. We are taken care of. This iron city is around us and we're the choice meats. Well, that's a lie. So here's what God says, verse five. And the spirit of Yahweh fell upon me. And he said to me, say, thus says Yahweh. So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. (laughs) We've already seen that. You have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled its streets with the slain. You guys, your violence have been killing people. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, your slain, whom you laid in the midst of it, They are the meat. The people that you killed were actually my choice meat. They were the top people. What God is saying is this, you killed people that were the best. You killed the top people. Now they're safe with me. They're my choice meat. I'm protecting them now. They're actually the ones in a safe cauldron. And this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword and I will bring the sword upon you declares Yahweh God. And I'll bring you out of the midst of this. I'm gonna take you out of this safe city and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am Yahweh. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am Yahweh. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, and you have, acted, you have not acted according to the rules of the nations that you have acted, excuse me, according to the rules of the nations that are around you. God says it's the opposite. Wrong answer. This city is not gonna protect you. You're gonna be taken away. In fact, the choice people are already in Babylon. Look at verse 16. Therefore say, thus says Yahweh God, though I remove them Far off among the nations, like Ezekiel, in the refugee camp, by a sewer canal, outside of Babylon, chapter one. And though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. What God is saying is this, actually, the choice ones were taken out, either because you killed them or actually took them to Babylon. And I'm gonna protect them in Babylon but this city's going down. It's the opposite of what you think. So then verse 17, and we'll be done. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, I will gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. God now begins. This is the first glimmer of hope. It's been really, really dark. Here we get hope. I'm gonna gather you back to the land of Israel. And when they come, They, very important, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the spirit of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
but as those whose heart goes after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares Yahweh God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel is over them. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, Mount of Olives. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the vision of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up for me. And I told, all, I told the exiles all the things that Yahweh had shown me. How does God get to Babylon? There's the answer. The city is rotten. The temple is defiled. God packs up, gets on his Godmobile, heads out of the temple, through the east gate, and out to Babylon. Here's a couple thoughts. Number one, their hope was not Jerusalem. Their hope was not Israel. Their hope was not the temple. Their hope was, guess what? God. I love that. Seems so simple. And yet what happens? We put our hope in a man or a candidate or a political system or a country, and we're sure to be disappointed. Their hope was actually in Babylon, the worst city in the Bible. That's where their hope was. I'm going to be a sanctuary for you there. You're going to be my choice people there. I'm going to protect you, and then I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you this land. Oh. And then the next thing to notice is this. You see in these verses, verses 18 and 19 and 20, you see the new covenant, right? Here's the hope. The hope is not Jerusalem. The hope is not the temple. The hope is not a new kind of system. The hope is you becoming a new kind of human. That's the hope that your heart that's so wrong is removed and you're given a better heart. The heart that the serpent is wrapped around from Genesis chapter three finally gets removed and that poison is gone and now you're given a brand new heart and on top of that, you're given the horsepower of my spirit. This ruach that's been doing all this stuff through these 10 chapters, that same force, that same spirit I don't want to use the word force. That same power is going to be placed into you so that you can obey my laws. I'm going to take up residency in you. So here's where the scroll gets sweet. Right here. This is our hope. This judgment, this really hard thing has a goal and a purpose and its end is beautiful for the marked people of God. Do you know that? No matter what, happens in our world, if you're a marked person of God, which Ephesians 1.13 says, every single one of us that has believed in Jesus Christ, we've been stamped with his Holy Spirit, that, we've, that he's taken up residency inside of us. We're the marked people of God. Every day gets brighter and brighter and brighter because of Jesus Christ. And so when I see this little text my heart sings because this is the answer to the human problem. This is the answer to the image in, inside of those elders' brains. This is the answer to the astral pole that's outside that's tempting the king every time he walks by it. This is the answer. It's new covenant Christianity. That you that have believed in Jesus Christ, here's what happens to you. You are given your old heart that's really wrong. You're given a new heart and you're given a new spirit. 
And I tell people all the time, how do you prevent temptation? How do you stop succumbing to all this garbage? Real simple. It's new covenant Christianity. You stop, you pause, you remember who you are. I am a child of the king of the universe. I have been given a brand new heart. I don't have to do that, number one. Number two, you think about what you really want to do. Satan tempts at the surface level. For the believer, there's in us, I believe Romans chapter seven, deep, incredible desires that are godly. What I really want are the deep things. And I do what will most make me truly happy. And if I'll do that, most of the time, you'll do what's right. New covenant Christianity. But too often, here's what we're like. We're like when I take my kids to the dollar store. What do they want? A dollar toy. I'm like, listen, that thing, you will play with it for three minutes and then it will break and you'll be sad. That's not really what you want. That thrill thing is not what you really want. Stop, (laughs) think, pray, and say, what would truly make me happy? A Yamaha for 50 quad, (laughs) right? There's deeper, better things that will make you happy. We're so often like like kids in a dollar store. And Satan just uses these tools on us all the time. And if we'd stop for a second and be like, that's not really what I want. I deal with young people all the time in porn. I ask them always this question. I say, young man, tell me this. After you look at porn, I know there's a thrill to it, obviously, but are you happy? Of the probably mm, 30 plus young men I've asked that question, not one of them has ever said, yeah, it makes me happy. All of them, no, it's a bummer. I feel depressed. I feel angry at myself. I feel like a letdown. I feel like a loser. Not one of them has said, that makes me happy. I said, you know why? Because God designed you for the two to become one flesh. God designed you for marriage. And if you'll stop and really think what you most want, you'll know, I don't want that. I want a lifetime commitment to one woman where we grow, we get doed, where our souls intermingle and we start to look like each other when we're old. That's what I really want. Truly, it's what we were designed to be. That's new covenant Christianity. And that's what Ezekiel is being told, this is what's gonna be produced. All this, ah, is bringing something so beautiful and so wonderful and so incredible. And that's our hope. So yeah, we're a lot of chapter eight, no doubt. There's all kinds of abominations around us. You take a tour of Grant's past, you'll see it. But the good news is this. Every one of you that has accepted Jesus, you have a brand new heart. Your deep desires are right. And you've been given the power of God's spirit. And if you'll lean into that power, man, you thrive, you flourish. And you're a shining example to other people of a flourishing community in Grant's past in Babylon. And that's my prayer for us. And so Jesus We're so thankful that you're the one that came and brought this new covenant. 
through your broken body and your spent blood. You gave each of us the opportunity to have new hearts and to be given your spirit that empowers us. And so I pray for the believers in here tonight. I pray that we would be new covenant Christians. Yes, there's a war, Romans 7 says. The things that we want to do, we don't do. And the things that we don't want to do, we do do. But if we'll stop, Romans chapter 8, and walk in step with your spirit, listening, praying, patiently, looking for what we really want, walking in step with your spirit, oh, life flourishes. Thank you for giving each of us new hearts because of our faith in Jesus. Thank you for the empowering work of your spirit. I pray that we would walk from here today in victory. Walk from here today knowing who we are, whose we are, and what we can do. So empower us and engage us, Lord. May our hearts break for what we see in Grant's past. May our hearts break for those who have not believed in Jesus Christ, have not received salvation, have not been given a new heart and a new spirit. May our hearts break for them. May we sigh and groan and pray for our city. And then may we act as you show us. May we help the least of these in our city. And may we see Grant's past transformed, I pray. May we see the Babylon become Jerusalem. And we pray this in your name, amen.